Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. So I want to start by just taking a little bit of a look at the last few years of what the media has done on climate change. And this really comes back to Rocky's question earlier and Brad's answers. How's the amount of coverage? How are the topics and framing? And how's, the, how's it going with connecting the dots between things like extreme weather events and climate change? So why isn't the media covering climate change all day, every day? This was asked in the Washington Post. And you know this really is the most important story of our time. And as Chuck showed you with his wave, it really swamps everything. Climate trumps everything, as I wrote in Scientific American with my colleague Michael Mann. And so when I hear that there's just not enough space in the news hole to talk about climate change or that we can't keep talking about it all the time, I say, well, how about things like the royal baby? <laughs> so the, here's the comparison of what was you know, the, the amount of minutes on ABC, CBS, and NBC on climate change and extinction the week after two huge reports came out on climate change and extinction. But look what the media was covering. Enough said. <laughs> and then what topics, how is the media covering the issue of climate change? You know, it's almost always presented as a political story. What did Trump do today? What did the Trump administration say? And did they pull us out of the Paris Climate Agreement? And you know, what's going on? So, so often it's a political story. And as Ed and some of the others have already told you, it's not, a, well, of course it's a political story, but it's a health story, it's a water story. It's about our food, our water, our energy, our security, our safety, our way of life. So that's not really what's being covered though. And so in two weeks of coverage of the hurricanes in 2017 on eight major TV networks, and this is more than 1,500 stories, Trump was discussed in 60% of the stories, climate change in only 5% of the stories of all of that coverage of hurricanes. Here's another piece, and our friend from the Solutions Network is going to love this. Doom and gloom, the role of the media in public disengagement on climate change. So this is an essay written by Elizabeth Arnold. You all probably know of her. She was with NPR. She's now up in Alaska and teaching. And she says that she thinks the media, because when they cover the issues of climate change, not the politics, the science, that it's mostly doom coverage. It's about how bad things are and not nearly enough as on the solutions, which Brad said was one of his top things that he would like to see you do more of. And I couldn't agree more. The story is not just the problem, it's also the solutions. And if people feel like this is a problem that they can't solve, they're going to pull the covers over their head. They're going to disengage. So it's really important to discuss the solutions. And I couldn't agree more with what she has to say. By the way, a link to this article and lots of other stuff is going to be yours in these resources that you're going to have a link to. In fact, you already have it. It's been sent to your email. So, Broadcast news segments that discuss the link between climate change and extreme weather events in 2017. Almost nothing. Zero, one, or two. Eight on PBS, pretty good. But still, that's in a whole year, 2017, which was a year of tremendous amount of extreme weather. The connections are not being made. The linkages are not being drawn. We're going to give you lots of resources to help you do that much more easily, effectively, and accurately so that you can count on what you're saying. 
How often did the broadcast news mention the links between climate change and hurricanes like Florence? Almost none. And what about newspapers? So just 7.5% of the articles on Florence in the top 50 US newspapers mentioned climate change. So it's not just broadcast TV, it's newspapers as well. This is a major issue. How about fires? Any better on fires? Not so much. Broadcast news coverage of wildfires and climate change. In blue is the number of segments that were done. Lots of segments. In red, the number of times that they mention climate change. Climate change is increasing the size of fires, the intensity of fires, all kinds of issues to do with fires. And we've got lots of information on that from the peer-reviewed literature that you can cite. But I'm done with the bad news because I think a new day is dawning. I am seeing some really exciting signs in the news media coverage of climate change. And as Ed told you, in public opinion of climate change, we're seeing some really big shifts in public opinion. And I think we're seeing some of those shifts reflected in the media lately. So suddenly, TV is starting to talk more about climate change. It's showing up. We're beginning to see the crack. Seven hours, as Ed mentioned, on CNN. If you would have told me a year ago that CNN would have had seven hours of primetime coverage of a de de debate, uh, not a debate, town hall on climate change, I would not have believed you. So this is pretty impressive, and it's not the only example. Of course, Greta Thunberg is amazing, and the youth climate movement is getting a lot of attention. And you know, when I've, I've watched before, as we've had really huge demonstrations, and I've always been really frustrated by how little media coverage they've gotten. We would have 100,000 people in the streets, and there'd be nothing on the news. And I couldn't understand it. But that seems to have changed with the most recent set of climate strikes. So ABC, CBS, and NBC each had at least one segment on the climate strikes on their AM and PM news. That was pretty impressive to me. MSNBC had 22 segments on them on September 20th. They went around the country, and you saw all kinds of segments. They interviewed the kids. It was tremendous coverage. Fox News had 15. Most of them were belittling the strikes and downplaying the seriousness of climate change, but they covered them. <laughs> and newspapers, of the top 50 US newspapers, 36 featured the strikes on the front page. And, and um, 47 of those 50 produced their own original coverage of the strikes. So this, to me, was actually a lot of progress. And it wasn't just these strikes. We're seeing some other things going on in climate coverage. NBC has launched a new, a new climate unit. CNN has Bill Weir as a chief climate correspondent. CBS is running some segments now, Eyes on the Earth. And the senior VP at NBC said, we're not just going to do a week on this. This is the biggest story of our time. I have been waiting for 30 years to hear those words. <laughs> and I am so happy to hear them. So I think we're starting to see this. And covering climate now, you've probably heard about it. The Columbia Journalism Review is spearheading this effort. They've got 240 media outlets all over the world with a combined audience of over a billion people participating in covering climate now. So this is really good stuff. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this comes back to the, the whole solutions thing. It's both the threat and the opportunity, the worry and the hope. Now, I understand you're journalists, not advocates. But you don't want people to disengage, right? That's not good for you as journalists. You want them to be interested. And telling this complete story about the threat and the opportunity is, I think, a much more honest and complete way to tell the story. 
here and now, we've all repeated it. You've heard it from every single one of us. Every time we've done one of these national climate assessments, the one a few years ago, we said, happening now, affecting Americans, important opportunities to do something about it. Those are the three takeaways. Here and now, not something that's happening in the future. We used to think of it as a future problem. And sometimes in, in news coverage, I still see that. This may happen. This, you know, and always talked about in this sort of future framing. It's not the case anymore. It has come home to roost. We are living it, and we're seeing it. Not just about saving the Earth. I so often hear people talking about saving the Earth, saving the planet. It's not just about saving the Earth. Sure, it's going to be good for the environment and polar bears, but it's about people. It's about our economy. It's about our ways of life. Now, I have also focused a lot on language. And I did a TED Talk on this subject, which you can see at my website, very much about the language that we use in talking about climate change. And I see a lot of these things coming up in the news coverage that I read about climate change or listen to on the radio. And, or, so I want to talk a little bit about just a few examples of the kinds of language that I want you to become more aware of. So for example, Scott said this thing about blame, guilt, fault. So often I hear, the world is warming and we're to blame. People are at fault, and I cringe when I hear that, because those words, I think they make people recoil. They make people say, no, I, I didn't mean it. I didn't do it on purpose. It's not my fault. So I like to say, it's our responsibility. It's a much more positive framing. You're not trying to make people t feel guilty. How does that help? You just want them to take responsibility. This is about the kind of people we are. Do we clean up our own mess? Yes, we're responsible people and we can do that. So I would just urge you, I mean, I see those words blame and fault almost every day in some article I read about climate change. So I think responsibility is just a better term. I also hear a lot about the inevitability. No matter what we do, X, right? Now, I know that there's plenty of warming in the pipeline that's already baked in because of the emissions already in the atmosphere, but the future is in our hands. How much worse this gets is totally our choice. So in the, instead of talking about what's inevitable and that it's inevitable, talk about what's going to happen and how we have a choice in it and how urgent it is to act now because the longer we wait, the more is baked into the system. So this is really important because we have a choice between a little more warming that we, that's still going to be painful and expensive and we're going to have to adapt to and a lot more warming that becomes a global catastrophe. And people have to understand that that's the choice that we have. It's a choice between bad and worse, really. But it's, it is our choice. And the urgency is really important because this isn't like steel tariffs. If we don't get it done this year, we'll get it done next year. Every year we wait, every year we postpone. We bake more and more warming in. It gets more expensive, it gets more difficult. So John Holdren, President Obama's science advisor, used to like to say, there are three things we have to do. We have to mitigate, that is, reduce the emissions to lower future climate change. We have to adapt, that is, you know, make changes to be more resilient to what's already on the way and what's already here. And the third thing is suffer. And these are three movable pieces of the pie. The more we mitigate, the less we'll have to adapt and the less we'll suffer. The more we mitigate and adapt, the less we'll suffer. The less we mitigate and adapt, the more we'll suffer. So I think it's just really important for people to understand the choice and the urgency. Belief, this came up earlier. I, I did really, I got in a fight with my mother about this. She said, aren't you excited? More and more people are believing in it. 
Ah, oh, Ma, it's not about belief. So <laughs> we had, just happened a couple days ago. So it's about facts and evidence, right? 97% of climate scientists have concluded, based on the evidence, that human-caused climate change is happening. It's not a matter of belief. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of evidence and facts. So when I hear stories about regulations around uh, emissions, I often hear the word force being used. We're going to force, oh, companies will be forced to do X. Every time I read that, it just robes me wrong. It's like, again, it's like, are we all going to be forced to drive electric cars? It's like, no, you're going to love your electric car. <laughs> so I would rather see a word like require. They'll be required to reduce their emissions rather than forced. Just an example. And here's one of my favorites. We're hearing a lot lately about retreating from the coast, right? Managed retreat or some kind of retreat. Well, Americans know one thing. They do not retreat. <laughs> Maybe they advance in a different direction. <laughs> so I think we should move to advancement zones, relocate to advancement zones on higher ground. I just think, yes, we are going to have to relocate from the coast. I'm not trying to you know, cover that up. But retreat is such a negative word. It draws so much just, yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so I have another pet peeve. It's, it's about words that mean entirely different things to different communities of people. So the word Mets came up before, right? I said, um, I was talking about the meteorologists, and we call them Mets. But for some people, that's a sports team. And to an oncologist, it's a metastasis. So you know, there are these words that just mean entirely different things in different communities. We just have to be careful. One of them is the word aerosol. So to the public, you know what it is. An aerosol is a spray can. And that's what it's always going to be. And there's Rush Limbaugh. He heard that aerosols cool the climate. And he's spraying aerosols on the globe to do his part for global warming. But when scientists talk about aerosols, they're not talking about spray cans. They're talking about the tiny particles in the atmosphere that actually block out some of the sunlight. So we really confuse the public when journalists adopt the jargon, the language of scientists, and put it in their stories, the public is thinking it's something completely different. So be aware of these words that you may be adopting from scientists that the public may think of in a totally different way. I used the word mitigation a little while ago. Scientists use that word to mean reducing emissions, to stave off, to reduce the amount of future climate change. Mitigation means very different things in other contexts. It can mean cleaning up after the fact in some cases. And that's not what we mean at all. So I try and avoid that word, because I know it has other meanings. Positive feedback, Brad already mentioned this. Positive feedback sounds like a good thing to most people, right? They do a good job at work, they get positive feedback. But a positive feedback in the climate system is where something like warming causes even more warming. So it's a self-reinforcing cycle, a vicious cycle, if you will. So I try not to call that a positive feedback. You could just call it a feedback, actually, and that works equally well. But the word positive means good to people, and the word negative means bad. So when we talk about a positive trend in temperature, oh, good. <laughs> but it's not. It means the temperature's going up. So we just say an upward trend instead of a positive trend. So I just want to introduce this to you so I'll be like a bird on your shoulder. When you hear those things in the future, you'll remember them. 
I've written a ton about this, including this table and an article that I wrote. So if you follow me on Twitter, this is a pinned tweet, so you don't have to try and read it all now or anything. But you'll see some stuff in there that, like the word theory, right? You know how different that is in science than it is to the public. To the public, oh, that's just some theory. It's just some hunch or speculation. Well, to scientists, a theory is something very well understood that can be used to make predictions. You notice another one on here is called error. So scientists that you've talked to, they talk about error bars and error, the standard errors, like just, but to the public, error just means wrong, right? So th this is a problem. So I want to make you aware of this. I've got 150 of these words that I've identified that scientists are using that mean entirely different things to the public. And one of my favorites, of course, is this one, error. So I think when I retire, I'm going to open up a tavern for scientists. I'm going to call it the error bar. <laughs> So I talk about all this stuff in that TED talk that I did. Um, now, you've, you've heard a little bit already about the new abnormal. And so I don't like the term natural disasters because they're not natural anymore. We're changing them. Every weather event that takes place now takes place in a changed environment. So I wrote this piece called Unnatural Disasters. And it's full of advice on how to communicate the linkages between climate change and extreme weather events. It was in the... Um, World Meteorological Organization's bulletin, and it's at my website, and you're also gonna get a link to this in your resources. And this is another great resource for you. So many of you have mentioned this idea of wanting to be able to draw the connections between particular types of extreme weather and climate change, but not having that information at your fingertips. Now, of course, you guys don't read the peer-reviewed literature all the time, maybe sometimes, but so what we've done here is we've gone to the peer-reviewed literature, and we've gone to the latest reports of the IPCC and the National Climate Assessment. And we've found all the linkages that you can honestly and accurately report between climate change and hurricanes, between climate change and torrential rain and flooding, between climate change and heat waves. We've got one coming out on climate change and wildfires, another one on climate change and drought. And in the winter, we'll do one on climate change and winter storms. These are gonna be, and again, it'll be in your resources, plain language directly from scientific literature, things you can say without waiting for a specific attribution study on that event. There's a lot you can say based on what we know from basic physics. And that's what you're gonna find here. So that when you do, you know, you saw in my slides earlier how little the media are connecting the dots. And I do think that people are becoming the public is noticing the weather changing. They're feeling, especially if they've stayed in the same place for decades, they know it's different. They know these extreme weather events are more extreme and more frequent. But they read in the media and they don't see the connections being drawn. They see lots of stories. So you can actually make a big difference. People are feeling these things. Explain to them why. Explain to them what's happening. I think that will make a huge difference. And it's the thing I would suggest more than anything in my advice on what I'd like to see the media do better, is draw these connections between extreme weather events and climate change. Bernadette's gonna tell you more about some other resources that we have in the Climate Matters Media Library about doing the same thing. So I've mentioned these resources. We're gonna send you a bunch of other stuff. 
expert sources. I know for a lot of you, finding a good expert source can be difficult sometimes. So there's a group called Sciline. They're based out of the AAAS. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They're at Sciline.org. They actually partnered with me on the fact sheets that I just told you about, too. They will give you, if you just, you just go to their website, you put in a request, and on deadline, they will get you a, so a source. Somebody who's a great top scientist in the field that you need, and who's also been vetted for being a good communicator. So you don't have to worry about not being able to understand them or quote them. So that's a really good resource for you. The Yale new, brand new, all new Yale Climate Opinion Maps that Ed showed you, those are going to be in your resources too. The language articles that I've written the, um, for myth debunking. I agree with Brad. There's a lot of myth debunking that needs to be done. So there's this wonderful website, Skeptical Science, that has all the myths and then short, medium, and long answers, graphics, references, everything. And it's a wonderful resource, and it'll be in your list. And also, fellowships and funding for journalists, always appreciated. And that's going to be there, too, and lots more. So the last thing I want to talk about is something that comes up with a lot of journalists I talk to. They say, I'm really worried about this. I, I, don't, I know that some of my audience is just going to be turned off when, I start, when they start hearing a story about climate change or global warming. How do I deal with that? So 30 years of doing this has taught me that banging my head against a locked front door is not productive. Looking for a side door is much better. So here's a hint for looking for that side door. So this is the Yale Climate Opinion Map, the most recent one. And this was the, the question here is, the percentage of adults who think global warming is mostly caused by human activities. And everything in blue is less than 50% of the people in that particular place and over 50% yellow and up to red. So you say, well, that's not very good, is it? Only around half of Americans and very few of them out in the middle of the country think that global warming is caused by human activities. However, who supports renewable energy? Wow, just about everyone. So this is what Ed was telling you earlier, and this to me is a side door. Because the atmosphere does not care what you think, it doesn't care what you believe, it just cares what the emissions are. It responds to emissions. So if you do, if you like clean energy for other reasons, perfectly fine with me. I don't feel a need to convince people of something if it doesn't really matter to the end goal. So Justin Gillis said the same thing in the New York Times. Let's change the subject. Let's talk about the other advantages of the clean energy revolution. The multiple benefits of the same actions on climate change. We clean up the air. We get uh, technological development. We get job creation. We get healthier, cleaner, more walkable communities. There are lots of good reasons. And we know from this research that was done by Bain et al. in, Nature, in the journal Nature that people um, are motivated by these multiple benefits of action to take these actions, whether or not they accept the science of climate change equally. So this is all really important stuff. Here's a great example. The Kentucky Coal Museum covered their roof with solar panels. Now, they didn't do it because of climate change. They did it because it saved them $8,000 a year. So this is a great story. And I'm sure you can find stories like this. This is a side door. Here's another great story. So this is from Georgia. There's Colleen Kiernan. She's the head of the Georgia Sierra Club. And there's Debbie Dooley. She's the head of the Georgia Tea Party. Now, you would think these two women don't have a whole lot in common. But it turns out they have one important thing in common, and that is that they both love solar power. 
So these strange bedfellows have gotten together and lobbied the Georgia legislature for more uh, beneficial rules for solar power in their state. And the Greens and the Tea Party got together and they call themselves the Green Tea Coalition. <laughs> Perfect, right? <laughs> So the governors, GOP governors, they love renewables, right? They got the Saudi Arabia of wind. You know, all of these things are great. You know, like Chuck told you, the, the biggest growing job categories, solar and wind. Community solar, it's a great story. A lot of people think of solar and they think about it on each person's roof and they don't realize the benefits of something like community solar. So I think there's a lot of good stories to be done on community solar and utility scale solar. There's also a lot of good stories to be done about how people are beginning to act, and often in a very bipartisan way. The Citizens Climate Lobby is a great example. They've got 460 local chapters around the country. They're completely nonpartisan. And so I would just suggest that as something to, to look up. And with that, I want to stop and answer any questions you have. Thanks. <laughs>